1 Samuel 23 this morning. You ever had a time in your life when you felt stuck? You ever just felt like nothing that you can say or do is going to change anything? It's not a great feeling, is it, to just to just feel stuck? I've had a lot of people as a pastor um, over the years say things like that to me, that they feel stuck in whatever situation it is, and I felt it too, and it's a great way to think about David's situation um, in chapter 23, and I hope that today's chapter is, is as encouraging to you as it was to me uh, preparing it. So I'm going to start reading in verse 1. This is God's word. It says, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. David asked of the Lord. If you remember, that's what Saul's name actually meant. The asked for one. And David is kind of like the the real Saul, the true Saul. He's the one that's actually asking God for guidance. Something that Saul should have been doing. He's the one that's actually going to save his people from their enemies. Something that Saul should have been doing. Verse 3. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? So here's that fear again. The fear of the people that keeps coming up in almost every chapter. And this is an important moment. How will David respond? Verse 4. Then David inquired of the Lord again. Good call, David. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. And so David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. So David responds to the people's fear by asking God again for guidance. And then he obeys that guidance. Even though it's a dangerous thing to do, right? Verse 6. When Abiathar the son of Ahimelech had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. So Abiathar was the only survivor from Saul's attack. Remember last week, Saul attacked the priests at Nob, killed everyone, everything, every animal. But apparently, the son of Ahimelech survived. Verse 7. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah 
to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. And David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Now David just saved that city from the Philistines. And they respond by betraying David to Saul. It would be very easy to be upset with the people of Keilah for this betrayal, but it should remind us of Jesus. Jesus came to His own people and His own people did not receive Him. David escaped with his life. But of course the Jews surrendered Jesus to be crucified by the Romans. We'll come back to this in a moment, but I just want to get your your mind kind of thinking that direction. Okay? So David leaves Keilah and settles in the wilderness. Um, we're going to read about it, but it says that he goes to the wilderness at Ziph. People of Ziph are actually Judites, same tribe that David is from. Um, and so it's very interesting um, to me that they also are going to betray Jesus. But let's read verse 15. Uh, David, sorry. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. This is the last time that David and Jonathan will actually see each other. But I want us to notice how rich and meaningful this friendship was. It's kind of a side note in the text, but I think it's an important one. Jonathan goes out to meet David in the wilderness, again risking his own life to do so, but his, his friend he knows is in trouble. And so he makes this journey apparently for no other reason than just to be an encouragement to his friend. And notice the specific encouragement that Jonathan gives him. He reminds David of God's promise. You shall be king. Now, if Saul killed David, that would actually make God a liar. Right? Because that prophecy could not come true. 
And so Jonathan reminds him, hey, God said you're going to be king, so my dad cannot kill you. And I'm pausing here because this is perhaps the most important job of a good friend. True friendship, it looks like encouragement in times of trouble. Above all else, it is reminding our friends of God's promises, of His truth, of future blessing that's promised to us who are in Christ. And David gets the message He in Psalm 54, which is about this experience, he writes, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. Right? So David wrote that in response to what's about to happen, which as I said, this is another group of Jews from the tribe of Judah. The Ziphites are going to betray David and tell Saul where David is hiding. But watch what happens after that. Verse 25. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of my own. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of my own. Verse 26. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. In other words, just in the nick of time. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. And so Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. So the chapter, chapter 23, ends with this providential deliverance for David. Okay, God steps in at the last moment and provides an escape. Saul chases David to the point where it looks absolutely hopeless. And just at the right moment, a messenger arrives and Saul gives up the chase and leaves. And that's the story. But there's something else about this chapter. There's something important about this chapter that you probably missed. And it would be easy to miss because it's a very simple word. The word hand is used more times in the book of 1 Samuel than in any other book of the Bible. And not only that, it's used more times in chapter 23 than in any other chapter in the book. And I thought that was interesting. So I I counted nine uses of the word hand in chapter 23. And I want to look at them more closely, okay? Verse 4, God says to David... I will give the Philistines into your hand. Verse 6. Abiathar the priest comes to David with an ephod in his hand. 
Verse 7, Saul claims that God has given David into his hand. Verse 11, David asks God if the men of Keilah will surrender him into Saul's hand. Verse 12, David asks the same question again. In verse 14, the writer tells us that God did not give David into Saul's hand. In verse 16, Jonathan is said to have strengthened David's hand in God. In verse 17, Jonathan says that the hand of Saul will not find David. And then in verse 20, the Ziphites pledge to surrender David to Saul's hand. Okay, so it's clear to me at least what that word means. This is some kind of a power struggle going on, right? Where's David going to be? Whose hand is David going to end up in? Who has the power? And throughout the Bible, that word hand in this kind of way is is basically saying, who's going to get the job done? Whose hand is strong enough to accomplish this task? And the context is important. The story is important because David is on the run. His hands are tied. He is powerless to save himself, right? Just like the people of Keilah were powerless to save their city. And you have to think, if David had the power to control his own circumstances by his hand, he probably would not have chosen this particular way of life, right? He is in the wilderness running from an insane man who wants to kill him. His own people keep betraying him. And David can't solve the problem. David was literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. Literally, he's on a mountain. And all he could do was, as we say, play the hand that he was dealt. You heard that expression. But here's the thing. This is kind of the big picture of the text. Jonathan reminds him. This present suffering is overshadowed by future glory. It's basically what Jonathan says to him, right? You shall be king. Doesn't feel that way right now. (laughs) But it's still true. His present suffering was overshadowed by a promise of future glory. Okay? Running today, but a king tomorrow. And that is a very important theme in Scripture. It is um, the theme of the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says this. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's talking about the future, right? So present suffering, future glory. And why was the Apostle Paul so confident 
that his suffering was worth it. And not just any suffering. How was a man who was beaten, stoned, flogged, shipwrecked, and imprisoned so full of hope? And none of us in this room have experienced all of that, I guarantee it, right? If any of it. He says at the end of chapter 8 in Romans, he says this, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is, present tense, at the where? At the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, my present suffering is worth it because Jesus also suffered. And where is He now while I'm suffering? Where is He now? He's at the right hand of God. In other words, Jesus is in the most powerful place in the universe. There is no place of power greater than the right hand of God. He is in the position of greatest power. And what is He doing? Praying for us, but also that word is, is standing in our place. He's, he's advocating for us. In short, Jesus is in the most powerful spot in the universe and He's using that power for us. But how did Jesus get there? Now it would be easy to say, well, he's, he's God. He's the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. That's where He belongs. But Scripture puts it a little differently. Jesus got there by literally giving up His power. And not just symbolically. He literally allowed Roman soldiers to hammer spikes through His hands. Nailing them to a cross where they cannot move. Open. Empty. No power. Most of the conflict that we experience in the world today, if not all of it, has something to do with power. All of it. Something to do with power. That is true on a national scale. It's true, of course, on an international scale. It's even true on our personal relational scale, right? Marriage conflict often feels like a power struggle. 
it feels like one or both spouses feeling controlled or feeling a lack of control, trying to gain the upper hand, feeling stuck, right? The fights that we have between parents and children, especially between parents and teenagers, right? It's all about who's in charge. It's all about who's in charge. Conflict at work. Who's in charge, right? And we are, all of us, at some level, by nature, power-hungry people. We do not like the feeling of not being in control. And while we all scramble for scraps of feeling powerful, the only one who actually has any power is God. And what did He choose to do with it? He willingly emptied Himself, becoming visibly powerless on the cross for us. Listen to how Matthew describes this scene even before they nailed Jesus to the cross. This is, this is, this is something. Listen. And they stripped Him and they put a scarlet robe on Him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on His head and they did what? They put a reed in His right hand. You see that? I don't think I've ever thought about that phrase as many times as I've preached on on the cross. I don't think I've ever thought about that, right? We always think about the crown of thorns and the robe. Like, what does it mean they put a reed in His hand? His right hand, no less. And kneeling before Him, they mocked Him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on Him. And then they took the reed out of his hand and struck him on the head with it. No power. After Jesus rose from the dead, he offered his nail scarred hands to Thomas as proof. And then in John 21, He promised that Peter would suffer a similar fate. He said this to Peter, When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. You see the loss of power? Because brothers and sisters, no servant is greater than his master. In this life, We will suffer. We will feel powerless. We will feel stuck. But our present sufferings are no match for the future glory we have in Christ Jesus. This is the promise of God to His children. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Take the reed. You don't get my children.
Jesus is our rock of escape. And brothers and sisters, if we are in His hands, we are stuck. But that's a good thing. Let's pray. Precious Savior, I just I just pray that in some way we've all grown a little closer to you this morning, that we've all understood a little bit deeper the gospel, the good news. And that as we come to your table, our hearts would be encouraged we would be reminded that You bled and died in our place for us to be given eternal life. And this is just a a small taste before us while we suffer in this present age, a small taste of future blessing that is promised to us in Christ. I pray we would receive it as such in Jesus' name. Amen. This table is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not something that belongs to, to me or to Christ's fellowship. That's why I'm standing behind it. It's it's there for you. All who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation and have made that profession of faith are welcome to this table. Um, So that means that your children, if they have not yet professed their faith publicly, they are not to partake. Um, But this is a great way to have conversations with them. Because we would love for them to do that. Um, But if you're visiting with us this morning, as long as you uh, have made a public profession of faith in a a Bible-believing church, you're welcome to come. The way we do it is, um, with these these cup things that we have for now, uh, you come and we're going to ask one person from each household to just come and get however many you need and take them back with you. And then we'll partake together. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He took bread, and after giving thanks, He offered it to His disciples and said, This is My body, which is for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of Me. And after supper, He took the cup and offered it to His disciples as well and said, This cup represents the new covenant, which is in My blood. It was shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. Amen. Please come.